In 2006, a story came out of Boston that made uh, national news. Uh, crime, in Boston, crime in Boston had been steadily growing, the drug scene, uh, murders steadily on the rise, uh, violence drive by shootings every evening on the news. And uh, the story that caught media attention uh, had to do with a man named Anthony Warren. Some of you may remember this story. He got into an altercation. During the fight, he drew his handgun and shot and accidentally hit a five-year-old little girl named Kaylee uh, Harriet. And uh, Anthony Warren's trial was set for the spring of 2006. The judge uh, made a declaration, declared that he would serve 13 to 15 years for this crime. But before the judge was uh, giving the, the sentence, little Kaylee was given an opportunity to speak. And... Um, with tears in her eyes as she looked around at that courtroom full of people, including the man that had shot and paralyzed her, she said that she uh, forgave the man that shot her. And following that moving statement from Kay Lee, her mother stood and was also able to speak to the room and said these gut-wrenching words. I've tried to hate him, but I couldn't. And so today, I forgive you. I want you to know that I forgive him. And the news broke out about this verdict, but more importantly, the forgiveness that the victim and her mother gave to this man. Everyone was talking about it in the grocery stores and uh, newspapers, barber shops. Everyone was in amazement. It even hit CNN. And during an interview on national news on CNN, the little caption under their, their face said, Amazing Grace. And, uh, and people, were, people were saying, well, she may forgive him, but I don't. How in the world could you forgive a man that shoots a bullet and hits a little girl, forever ruining her life? Amazing grace. Why would CNN use those two words to describe that story? And, uh, and it's interesting because the more you read about the story, you find out that Kaylee and her mom were born-again followers of Christ. They belonged to a, a little church right outside of Boston, and the interesting distinctive about this family is that they had experienced the gospel. And, and, and I tried to hate him, but I couldn't. So I want you to know I forgive you. I forgive him. Probably still having nightmares about that horrific day, little Kay Lee says, I forgive him. Well, how do you get there? How in the world can you have that kind of forgiveness and grace in your heart? Bible scholar and pastor uh, Kent Hughes tells the story about a, a group of scholars, um, biblical scholars that met in England several decades ago. And they met to discuss what was the, the primary distinguishing difference between Christianity and other religions of the world. And one scholar stood and, and proposed that it was the incarnation of Jesus, that God became a man and walked on the earth. And the room debated about this for a while and came to the conclusion that no, other religions have stories or myths about gods becoming human. So that, that's not the distinguishing characteristic. Another scholar stood and proposed that maybe it's the resurrection. That, that, that Jesus rose from, from, the, from the dead and, and conquered the grave. And they debated this for a while, discussed this for a while, and, and came to the same conclusion. That there are other religions or, or belief systems that have myths or stories about people being resurrected. And so finally, C.S. Lewis, who many of you have heard that name, possibly even read some of his writings, Lewis stood and said, this is easy. The distinguishing characteristic of Christianity is grace. It's grace. 
And you think about it, and that's true, isn't it? I mean, all other religions require that you do something, that you follow a path, or that you perform in some way that makes you acceptable to God. Every other religion in the world, if they believe in heaven, they have some sort of understanding that your entrance into heaven is based in some way upon your performance, how you do. And the gods honor that. Christianity is unique in that your acceptance with God, your entrance into heaven is based solely upon the merit, the the performance, the credit, the goodness of someone else, namely Jesus Christ and him alone. That's the difference. You get, this, this is the most staggering truth that we believe. Of all the things that we could believe, church family, this is the most staggering truth in the Christian faith. That you get what he deserves, what Christ deserves, because he took the penalty for what you did wrong. That's grace. That's grace. There's no other truth claim like that in the entire world. And here in Acts chapter 15, it's that truth that's under attack. It's that truth that's being being, uh, stomped in the mud and, and dismissed. Grace itself is under attack. And so we have to ask, church family, what must we do when grace is under attack? And I think the text this morning gives us that answer. Let me give you a little bit of background, where we've been, where we're at, where we're headed. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and Luke is writing to us in this section of Acts about the ministry of Paul. He's been on a missionary journey, and he's taken the gospel to places where it's been unknown. This is first century Christianity. His first stop was in Cyprus. If you remember Barnabas, this is his stomping grounds. This is where Barnabas is from. They go to uh, Cyprus and share the gospel and lead Sergius Paulus to Christ. He's a Roman governor. And uh, they continue their missionary journey. They go to modern-day Turkey, to, uh, to places like Lystra and Iconium and, and Derby, and, uh, and they finish that journey, that missionary journey, and then they retrace their steps to encourage and strengthen these brand-new churches, these brand-new Christians in these areas. And then in chapter 14, uh, last week, Pastor Michael walked us through chapter 14 where they return to Antioch, their, their sending base, their home base. And, uh, and, and, and as they went back, they, they hear all that's been going on in their absence. Approximately two years that this journey has taken them. It was a time of great rejoicing, rekindling old friendships, uh, telling stories, sitting up late at night, talking about all that God had done since they'd seen each other. They didn't have Facebook or or cell phones, so they're catching up on everything that's happened since they've seen each other last. And and, and chapter 14 ends by telling us that they stayed a while with them. It was a, a great reunion. Now, a big picture before we dive into the text, what we see in chapter 15 is another attack from Satan against the church. Uh, we've already mentioned that specifically. Uh, Satan has tried to, to, to destroy the church in numerous ways. He wants to put here in chapter 15 traces of works-based salvation in the church. Because if, if Satan can convince the church, the people of God, that there's something we have to do to earn or merit salvation, then it diminishes the grace of God. And, uh, and let me explain what I mean there, maybe with an illustration. I love uh, apple desserts. If you know me very well, you, you probably know that. So apple pie, apple crisp, apple cobbler, apple dumplings, apple turnovers, candied apples, caramel apples. I'm here for all of it. I, I like apple desserts. And, uh, and if you made me an apple dessert, I would attack it. I would devour it. I mean, just, just consume it. I love them. But if you came to me and said, Matt, I made you this apple dessert. It's just the way you like it. I used all of the right ingredients that the recipe would call for. It it looks good. It smells good. It it tastes good. But before you bite into it, you should know 
uh, that, that I added one tiny little dab of cyanide into it. Now, now cyanide would kill you dead, like graveyard dead. But, but you should know that, 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 that I, it's just a little dab, and I put it, I think it's on this end of the dessert, on this side of the, the pie, uh, pie pan. Now, do you think I'm going to eat that dessert? Do you think I'm going to risk it? Do you think that I'm going to, that I'm going to, I'm going to try to remember which side you said you think you put the cyanide on just so that I can have some of that? No. Why? Because you've ruined the entire thing. By adding something to it, you've, re- you've ruined the entire thing. It's no good for anything. You can't even give it to your pets. And that's what salvation looks like when we tried to add even one ounce of human effort to it. We show that in, in, in thinking that we bring anything to the table in salvation, we prove that we've not understood anything about the gospel. It's grace and grace alone. And we've seen Satan attack the church in some pretty cunning and crafty ways. Persecution. Maybe just destroy them with persecution. Or maybe, maybe uh, inside opposition, right? Fights within the church, divisiveness, disunity. Uh, infiltrate the church. Send folks in that appear to be Christians that are not. Maybe deceit, lying to one another, division. But this morning in chapter 15, Satan's really crafty. He's really cunning because he presents a theological problem for Christians. That, that wasn't just a problem in the first century. It's a problem for every generation of Christian after the first century. And it came up with the apostles, and they dealt with it in our text this morning in Acts 15. And we see it in the New Testament, so we know even though they dealt with it, it continues to come up in the epistles, and it continues to come up in our day. And in fact, I would say it's still today the number one way that people go wrong in their thinking about Jesus and salvation. We minimize grace. We minimize grace, and we show that we, un- we do not understand salvation when we think that it has something to do with our own efforts. And so how do we combat this problem? This theological error, this damnable error. Well, praise God, he gives us his word. And in Acts, we get to see how they dealt with it. And we get to learn from it. And so before we get into the text, though, let me give you a spectrum. Because I think sometimes it's hard for us to, to filter our reaction and response to different problems. Right? So here's the spectrum. On one end of the, of the spectrum, on the one hand, you have some Christians who want to fight about everything. Right? Every little thing. So from the location of the piano in the sanctuary to the, to the, to the worship service, order of service, or the, the style of music in the worship service, uh, whether homeschooling or public schooling is the best, personal convictions, it doesn't matter if there's a conversation they want to fight about it. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum in our culture, and this is a, a relatively newer thing, there's this idea of political correctness and tolerance, quote-unquote tolerance, that would say we, we as Christians should never have a heated debate about anything because it ruins our witness. That to get heated about anything shows that we're not being tolerant or not being uh, understanding of someone else's thoughts. And so everyone should just accept everyone else's views as being their truth. And so confrontation should be avoided even when the most important theological matters are at stake. In other words, on the one hand, you have folks that want to fight about everything And on the other hand, you have folks that won't stand up for anything. And there's the spectrum. And so how do we as believers come to a text like this and and, and try to navigate how we should respond to theological error and preserve unity in the church? And I think this text gives us both answers. We should be willing to go to battle when the gospel's at stake. Let me give you uh, the thesis statement for our text today. It's the the thing that our text and our sermon will revolve around. It's in verse 11. 
I'll read it to you first because I think everything that we're going to say today hinges on this statement. Verse 11 of chapter 15. It says this, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. That's the main idea. For the text and the sermon, it's coming right out of verse 11. And we're going to see it in three sections this morning. We're going to see it in three sections. First, grace under attack. Second, grace explained and exhibited. And then third, grace passed on and proclaimed. So let's look at the first one, grace under attack. You see it in verses 1 through 5. Let's read together. It says this, But some men came down from Judea where they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the customs or the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, last week in chapter 14, we have this incredible statement in verse 27, this this idea that that God is opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, we this morning, church family, should be thankful for that door being opened because we are the Gentiles. The gospel has come to us, and that's good news. But not everyone was thrilled by it. You see, even in our first five verses, uh, some of the Jewish background believers, that's Christians who have a, a Jewish background, didn't like that the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, but not conforming to the, the cultural distinctives of Judaism, right? It's fine that they come to faith in Christ. We can, we can desire that, pray for that, work for that. But when they get here, they need to look like us. In other words, these folks, uh, they thought these, these Christians, these Gentile Christians with no Jewish background, needed to look like Jews because that's where Christianity started. Especially in the practice of circumcision, Right? Now, before we're too hard on these Jewish Christians, this is a logical question. I mean, think about it. Before you come down on them, the first Christians were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, the old covenant followers of Yahweh were Jewish. Christianity is a, is, a, is a messianic movement that was predicted by the Jewish scriptures. And further than that, thinking about their background in the Old Testament, When someone came into Judaism, when they converted over to the faith of Yahweh, they were required as outsiders to demonstrate that conversion, that conviction, that transition in their lives by the act of circumcision and the adherence to Jewish rituals, the laws of Moses, before they were accepted into the community of faith. And so it's probably very difficult for them to understand this sudden change. Now, this is a theological issue, but it has practical implications. If you think about how this fleshes itself out in their day-to-day lives, right? How could Jewish Christians uh, have a meal with Gentile Christians when the Gentiles fail to uphold the same food laws? They can't even share a meal together. And so the Jews would be defiled by the eating habits of the Gentiles. How do we have fellowship? How do we have community? So barely halfway through the book of Acts, and we're potentially looking at the first church split, a Jewish church and a Gentile church because they can't agree on, on which rules to keep and which ones they should that not keep. And so a conference is held to deal with this matter. Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church at Antioch to the church in Jerusalem to discuss. 
traveled 250-something miles, uh, visited the churches in Phoenicia and Samaria along the way, got to see those brothers and sisters that were converted uh, earlier in the book of Acts. There's encouragement that takes place. And then when they arrive in Jerusalem, they're greeted uh, warmly. They share all that God's been doing. Same thing that we see in Antioch and Phoenicia and Samaria. They, they share the stories that God has done and they celebrate and they rejoice. But not everybody welcomed them with warm hospitality. Verse 5, it shows us that, that there were some believers, the text says, uh, that belonged to the Pharisee party. And, and they wasted no time getting down to the brass tacks. You know, they made it clear that they felt like these Gentiles should not only be circumcised, but forced to keep the Mosaic law. The group made it just as plain as day, as soon as Barnabas and Paul get into town, that they were willing to go and fight over this issue, that they were adamantly opposed to grace, faith-based, circumcision-free gospel. And, uh, and, and, and so let's not just leave this problem in the first century church. Let's make some application here. Let's ask the Lord, what does this look like today? And sadly today, that we still have folks disputing this idea of salvation and salvation being by grace alone. Tony Marita in his commentary says this, that many today adhere, and sometimes without even realizing it, to a Jesus plus something gospel. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church attendance. Or Jesus plus quiet times. But if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. He says this, gospel math works like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus, while Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You miss it completely when you try to add anything to it. The work of Jesus is totally sufficient, friends. This is so hard for so many people to understand and even agree to, let alone rejoice in, right? There's one thing where you tip your hat to it and say, I, I, th- I mentally understand it. I have an understanding of what you're saying. There's another thing to believe it. There's another thing to rejoice in it, right? And I think in our culture, especially in the South, uh, raised in a rural community like, like I was, like many of you were, our culture pushes against this, right? And in the South, we pride ourselves with being hard workers, being self-made with excellent work ethic, right? Put our hand to the plow and we get the job done, right? And I'm not knocking good work ethic. When it comes to anything outside of salvation, we should be hard workers, We should labor with faithfulness unto the Lord. But when we have that mindset about our earthly physical work, it often comes over into our lives, our spiritual lives, with a pride that says, if I don't work, I don't eat. Right? You don't work, you don't eat. So if I can't earn it, I don't want it. I don't want a handout. I don't want any handouts. And so in our culture, that mentality carried over into our thoughts about Christ, carried over into our thoughts about salvation, is not only heretical, it's damnable. It sends people to hell. Because when you come to, to the gospel and you say, if I don't want it, or I don't want it if I can't earn it, I don't want handouts, that's not just a little problem with your thinking. It's showing that you totally missed the gospel. You've totally missed what Christ has done on your behalf. No one's ever, nor could ever, earn their salvation, perform well enough for God's favor. The gospel is not do this and earn God's favor. The gospel is Jesus has done this for you. Trust in him. There's a major difference there. And so see the grace of God under attack in the text and in our world. And let's continue in the text because we see how to deal with it. The second thing we see here in the text is that grace is explained and exhibited. Verses 6 through 21. Now before I continue reading, note as I read, the solution to this problem, this dilemma, didn't come from some new word of revelation. 
Uh, it came from the careful reading and studying of the scriptures. It comes to us this morning in Acts 15 in, in the form of three speeches that take place in the text. We'll see them in that order. We'll take them in the order that they're given to us. First, we see a speech or a testimony from Peter about his work in, in evangel, uh, evangelization. Um, second, we see a speech from Paul and Barnabas on how God used them to reach the Gentiles. And then the third speech we see is from James, uh, who interprets those experiences in light of God's word, which, side note, is how we should interpret things, right? We interpret our experiences in, through the lens of God's word, not God's word through the lens of our experiences. Right? The church in America would be so much better off if we would get this flipped around right. We'd minimize our experiences and elevate God's word. And we've done the exact opposite, I think, so often in, in, in American Christianity. We want to experience something, and if it agrees with the word of God, okay. Here's Peter's testimony in verse 6. It says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows their heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's no surprise here in our text that Peter, the, the motor mouth of the group, is the first to speak up. Once everybody's kind of debated a little bit, he's the one that has the floor first. And he alludes to the conversion of Cornelius. You remember Cornelius, the, the, this Gentile convert that we saw in the book of Acts, uh, would have taken place now at the time that Peter's now speaking, ten years before. I think that's hard for us to, to, to remember that we've studied this in a summer. This happened ten years ago, a decade ago, that they've been dealing with this and praying through this and working through this and struggling through it. And Peter, Peter's argument here, his, his speech is basically threefold. In verse 7, he says that his preaching to the Gentiles was not his idea. It was God's idea. He didn't come up with this thing. God did. Second, in verse 8, he reminds the people that God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just like he did to the Jews. Right? They have the Holy Spirit. We've attested to that. And then the third thing he does is he reminds the, the people that are listening that God makes no distinction. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. There's no partiality there. And therefore, the takeaway is for Peter, we shouldn't put any additional burdens on these Gentiles, on these, on these Gentile converts to look a certain way, to act a certain way. It's, it's clear and compelling logic if you think about it. He's Cornelius, accepted by faith, not circumcision. Jewish Christians, saved by believing, not by doing. Therefore, these Gentiles that are coming to faith in Christ all over the, the world because of these missionary travels, they're trusting Christ. They're not fulfilling Jewish rituals. That's the only way of salvation. It's the only way you're accepted by God. He sounds a whole lot like Paul, if you think about it. Paul in, in, in Galatians chapter 6. Or maybe Paul sounds like he does in Galatians chapter 6 because he heard it here from Peter. Either way, what they're saying, or both of them are saying something that's very similar. Paul says in, in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to it. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Here's what Peter and Paul are both saying. Peter in his, his speech here, Paul later in the book of Galatians, it doesn't matter if you've cut off part of your body in, 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 a, in a Jewish ritual, 
What matters is if God has given you a new heart. And he's filled that heart by coming and living inside of you in, in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what happens through faith. And uh, we move on and we see Paul and Barnabas' testimony. Look at verse 12. It says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Sort of reminds you of karaoke night, right? Like Peter gets the mic and he does his thing and he puts the mic down and, and Paul and Barnabas, they pick up the mic and they do their speech and they're, they're taking turns testifying, giving witness to the fact that these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know from verse 4 that, that Paul and Barnabas have already shared much of their story with these believers. They've already accounted for what for God has done in these missionary travels. Now, before the whole congregation, they're connecting the matter uh, of all these conversions to the matter at hand. What should we do with all, with all these uh, Jews that are saying they need to live like Jews? In a nutshell, they're showing how their mission trip was God extending grace to the Gentiles. And the brevity of it, the fact that it's only one verse, highlights another point for us. Uh, that the testimony alone is not a, a foundation, not a valid foundation for belief. Testimony is good. We need to hear of what God's doing in our lives and in the world. They needed to hear that firsthand account of what God was doing on these missionary journeys. But our doctrine must be grounded in the word of God. And that's where James takes us next. James's explanation of, of all of this that, that Paul, Barnabas, and Peter have said uh, based upon the scriptures. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the, the same James that would go on to author the book of James in our New Testament. And uh, James echoes the, the other's defense of, of circumcision-free salvation. And then he goes further to, to offer a suggestion that we'll see in just a minute about how to have some Christian fellowship and unity. But here's what's important. It's not just what he said. What he said is important, but it's where he grounded what he's saying, which is in the Word of God. James quotes Amos chapter 9. That's the quote that I just read to you from the Scriptures in Acts. He's quoting Amos 9, verses 11 through 12, uh, which teaches the Gentiles are being called to salvation. There's prophecy in Amos saying that there's coming a day when Gentiles will be brought into the family of God. And he prefaces that quote by saying the words of the prophets plural, the prophets, not just Amos, but the prophets agree. In other words, James is taking one prophecy from Amos, and he's saying uh, that, that what they're saying about the, what Amos is saying about the Gentiles, the other prophets are also saying. You can go to Isaiah 2. Uh, you can go to Isaiah 45. You can go to Jeremiah 12. You can go to Hosea 3. You can go to Zechariah 2. Uh, and, and on and on, he picks Amos, and he concludes that Peter, Paul, Barnabas, they're describing exactly what God said would happen in the Old Testament prophecy. Gentiles are being brought into the family. And he's grounding that experience, the experience that they've just heard testimony about, in the word of God. And his conclusion for the specific issue that they're facing, which is what God said would happen, was that they shouldn't be burdened with this, issue, this, issue, this 
additional issue of obeying the Mosaic law, verse 19. And then you see what happens next, and this is incredible, verse 20. But you should write to them, that's the Gentile believers, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Here's what James is saying, and we need to camp out here just a second, church family. James is saying, he explains first and foremost of primary importance that salvation is clearly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. You don't earn it. Christ has lavished his grace on you. And then after he clears up that, he makes a suggestion to them that would appeal to these, uh, make an appeal to these Gentile believers to avoid certain practices that may offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. You see his goal, right? It's unity in Christian fellowship. It's a church that's diverse but together. A church that is filled with different people but that are not insisting upon their own personal convictions and preferences. A church that loves its brothers and sisters enough to be sensitive to those who are in the church that they don't agree with. Out of love for their Jewish brothers, these Gentiles should avoid certain Jewish um, law practices that would have made them unclean. There's some application for us here, church. Be considerate of others' convictions, especially... The struggles that brothers and sisters have around you. The sin struggles that they may be struggling with right next, right next to you. Additionally, don't, don't offend unnecessarily over secondary and tertiary issues. Go out of your way to serve those in your faith family. Those are there. Those are some simple applications you can make from this. But we need to dig deeper. Because what you see in the text here, these specific requests that are being made by James are ritual matters in the context of a Jewish background faith. Let me, let me explain what I mean. It wasn't that these Jewish background Christians just thought something different, had a different conviction about a, about a matter. It's that these actual Jewish believers were still struggling with these things. All right? Last month, maybe even yesterday, some of these people were still trusting in the Mosaic law for forgiveness. And now they've trusted upon Christ. They're followers of Jesus, but they've had decades of law-following habits that they're, they're tempted to run back to because that's all they've ever known. They were making a transition from the law to grace, from rule-following uh, to, to grace. And this is not what we often do, right? When we apply texts like this, we usually we, we say, you should give up that freedom or this freedom uh, because someone may be offended because they disagree with you about that conviction, even though they've never struggled with that particular sin. You should just do it because they disagree with you. That's not what's going on here. These wounds were fresh. These convictions were, had just shifted for these Jewish Christ followers. These things that, 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 that the apostles are asking the Gentiles to make concession over made fellowship possible because to not do it would give these Jewish background Christians license to run back from the thing that they had left. And I don't think any of us are dealing with convictions regarding uh, Jewish food laws. Right? I don't think anybody's left Poplar Spring recently because I had a bacon cheeseburger last week. I don't think. But we do this. And to, and to, to my knowledge, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we struggle with Jewish food laws. But here's where the rubber hits the road for us, church. And here's where some application we might wish we had some steel-toed boots on. We don't break fellowship. We don't have license to break fellowship when we have a spat or a disagreement with someone. We, we don't get to just up and say, I'm done with you because I disagree with you. 
We don't get to be on non-speaking terms with brother and sister in the church because we don't see eye to eye on something. That's not giving us license here in the text. Listen, if you're a guest here at Poplar Spring this morning, we're so glad you're worshiping with us today. If you're new to the community looking for a church home, you are welcome here. We would love you to be a part of our faith family. But if you're here this morning as a guest and you belong to a church down the road and you're just here because you're mad at them, go back home. You don't belong here. At least right now, you need to go back and be reconciled with your brothers and sisters. The community that you are leaving are going to be hurting because you're leaving them. And, and you need to be made right before you go and just leave. And I don't think the text gives us license to do so. You and I are here this morning as a family. And we don't get to just break up with one another because we disagree. Now when Papua Spring or any other church stops preaching the gospel. And they begin polluting the gospel. Get out of there. Don't hesitate. You leave. But just because you feel strongly about something, even convicted about something, if it's not a gospel matter, be willing to humble yourself and serve your brother or sister. doesn't mean that your convictions are wrong. It just means that you're saying, I love you, brother, more than I am and am convinced of this idea that we're disagreeing about. I love you, sister, more than I am convinced about this thing that I'm convicted about. Gospel first. Christian unity second. Personal conviction somewhere way down here. And when we get those mixed up or out of order, terrible, heretical mistakes can be made in the body of Christ. Third thing we see in the text. Grace passed on and proclaimed. And this is really good, church family, starting in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. This is what our brother Jesse has read for us this morning. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syrians, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood. And from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation there, they delivered the letter. And when they, read it, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They had a business meeting, and they left in agreement. <laughs> Miracles happening in the book of Acts, church family. The men sent Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to give a report, but they sent other believers with them to give testimony. Uh, in addition to the, the letter there, they're sending oral testimony of everything that had taken place. And it can be summarized in, in, in three real quick points. The, the council rejected this idea that circumcision must be placed on top of uh, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They rejected that. No, it's not the case. Second, these delegates who are bringing this letter and addressing it orally had the council's full approval. They spend a good bit of time doing that. So here's how you can trust. There's these men that have, we're in one accord. These men will testify to it. This letter will testify to it. We're together. And then third, there was this emphasis, and it made it clear that the Spirit had directed the council to this unanimous decision that the Gentiles would not be burdened with law-keeping, with these Jewish rituals, in, in particular this issue of circumcision. But 
We're requesting that, that you abstain from these four, four particular ritual matters for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters who are, are coming out of a life of keeping those ritual matters. In other words, the fellowship matters were not conditional for salvation, but they're important for unity. Does that make sense? Do we see that in the text? With this letter in hand, these men head out, they head to Antioch. They shared it with the believers. They rejoiced that the Gentile Christians were accepted into the family. You can imagine the rejoicing and the, and the celebration that took place, right? That these Gentiles, uh, at first second-class citizens, kind of just uh, nobodies, were now full members of the family. No longer second-class citizens. They didn't have to, to adopt a Jewish way of life to have a seat at the table. They're full family members. You can imagine the rejoicing this brought to them. Verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words and after they had spent some time they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also I love the final scene in this section of Acts before we see the next missionary journey we see the church being encouraged unified fed comforted rejoicing together in the truth of the gospel And it's characterized by peaceful, joyful unity. Different groups of people with very different backgrounds, diverse in in every way, together unified in the gospel because that's what the gospel does. It liberates. It brings joy and peace when there's disagreement and and, and confusion and discussion. And so as I wrap up, I want to give us a couple considerations as we apply this text, as we think through how this hits us today in our day and age Jewish background is not the the big thing for us. So how do we take a text like this, bring it over into our world, and and live out this truth that we've heard from the scriptures today? i got a couple things. First, be willing to battle when it comes to the gospel of grace. Be willing to throw down when it comes to the gospel of grace. That's, That's a hill we die on every single time. No question. We preach grace alone for salvation. No merit from us. No earning it. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that assumes that you understand the gospel of grace, right? I think so often we, we, we add, not intentionally, and we'd never say it this way, but we're, we're sometimes we get so passionate about certain convictions, so, so passionate about certain disciplines in the Christian faith, that we, we somehow conflate them and add them to and make them a gospel issue when they're not a gospel issue, right? And so when I say go to battle over the gospel, I mean the gospel. Very specifically, I mean the teaching that Jesus, that we're first sinners. We're, we're lost. We're dead in our sins, the, the Bible teaches. Nothing good in us. No merit. We're dead. And Christ lived a perfect life and died a criminal's death on the cross, on Calvary, in our place. He substituted himself for us. He was killed a criminal in our place and rose from the dead on the third day and says that if you'll come to him through faith and repentance, believe upon him, repent of your sins, you'll be born again. That's the gospel. Not adding anything else to it, not taking anything away from it. That's the hill we will die upon. We don't back from that truth, ever. That's the one we go to battle for. We must never bend on it. We rest in his grace, not in our works, and we proclaim this grace to the world. We'll do battle for the gospel. Second, though, at the same time, if we'll be willing to do battle for the gospel, we must be willing to lay down arms secondary matters, tertiary matters, to preserve the unity of the body. When it's not the gospel, we must be willing to back away from our canons and say, I want to love you, brother. I don't want to go to war because this is not gospel, right? And there are sometimes when the gospel frees us to give up our freedom, 
We say, I can see that this was a struggle for you. I can see that you're suffering because of my freedom, and I'll give that up for you. And then there are times when the Bible leaves an issue open to a matter of conviction. And though we feel really strongly about it, we say, hey, this isn't an issue of division. This is an issue where we agree to disagree and still stay in fellowship together and love one another because the gospel's created a unity in us uh, that, that would produce such love. Both are there. John Newton, the writer of the, the hymn Amazing Grace, he said this about Paul's simultaneous commitment to the gospel, the gospel of grace, and his flexibility when it came to other convictions that he didn't agree with or that he saw it within the church. John Newton said this. He said, Paul was a reed in the non-essentials and an iron pillar in the essentials. That's really good, church. Let's be, let's be like that. Let's be solid as iron when it comes to the essentials, when it comes to the gospel. But let's be as flexible as a reed when it comes to the non-essentials. Personal convictions, personal preferences, our personal tastes on things. And as we do that, let's rejoice and let's celebrate and let's live at peace with one another as we watch God take his church, standing firm on the gospel, flexible on the non-essentials, and he fans into flame a fire for the fame and renown of Jesus in this community and around the world. That's what happened with this church. Let's live it out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that when it steps on my toes, I would be quick to hear and quick to repent, quick to change. And God, I pray that for every person in this room and in the overflow rooms this morning. That God, as the word of God confronts us, we'd be changed. We wouldn't be stiff-necked, but our hearts would be fertile soil, ready to receive the word of truth. God, I pray if there's one here this morning that's never experienced the, the transformative work of the gospel in their life, that today would be a day of salvation, that for the first time maybe they're hearing, not with just their ears, but with their hearts, that Christ died in their place, exchanged his goodness for their sinfulness on the hill called Calvary. And he rose proving that he'd conquered death and that his sacrifice for sin had been accepted. God, would you breed salvation in someone's heart today? Would you bring life where there's deadness? And then God, for your people in this room, help us to be a unified people. God, we know that's a work that only your spirit can do. God, if we have fault with a brother or sister, help us to be quick to go and repent to humble ourselves and admit that we were either wrong or right, but handled it the wrong way. Help us to be unified and together because we're humble and willing to put aside our preferences. So God, we give you this time and we pray as we respond that you'd be honored. You'd be honored because your, your people are being obedient. You'd be honored because the lost are, are, are confessing you as Lord. You'd be honored because we lift our voices to magnify King Jesus. We give you this time as we respond. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.